You are listening to Mosul in the Islamic State. Its episodes contain content which may be disturbing or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Omar, from June 2014 to December 2015, you lived in the Iraqi city of Mosul while it was under the control of the Islamic State, sometimes referred to as ISIS or Daesh, an Arabic acronym of its name. Now, for that entire time, you worked alone, not only reporting on an almost daily basis the things that you saw happening in your city, but actively pushing back against the Islamic State's claims, writing under the pseudonym of Mosul I. In fact, you were such a thorn in the side of the Islamic State in Mosul that they searched for you, tried to track you down, and promised to publicly torture and kill you. I've spent a lot of time in conflict areas working on the ground with communities, and I cannot even begin to imagine the stress and pressure that you lived with for all that time. What was an average day for you as Mosulai reporting from inside the Islamic State's Iraqi capital of Mosul? You ask me about my average day. So after a day of walking the streets, I would come back. I would come back to my apartment close the door, and I would put music on. I love Etzak Perelman, so I would often listen to him. And I would sit and write about everything I saw that day. A man stoned to death. Yes, the orphans being registered by the administration of Daesh. People throwing off from high buildings. Crucifixions on the road to Raqqa. Hands being removed. Executed men being eaten by dogs. Women being publicly abused and stoned to death. To try and make sense of all of this for our audience, we're going to have to go back to the start. My name is Omar Muhammad. I was born and raised in Mosul. It's my city. When it was captured by Daesh in 2014, I wrote from the occupied city under the pen name Mosulai. So much has been said about Mosul and the Islamic State, mostly by people outside the city. Now, with my co-host Haroro Ingram, and thanks to the program on extremism at George Washington University, we will tell the untold story of Mosul and the struggle of its people. This story will be told to you by those who were there, and most importantly, by Maslawis themselves. Episode 1. Creating Monsters. The question of where to start is really tricky, but I think it's important for us to try to set up for our audience the history leading up to 2014 when Mosul was captured. And to do that, it's not going to be enough for us to go back to the Iraq war, which begins in 2003. We're going to have to go back much further to try to capture the decades of dictatorship, of wars, of crippling sanctions, and of more wars. You were born in the 1980s, Omar. So in many ways, the trajectory of your life covers some of the most critical moments leading to the Iraq war in 2003, and about a decade later, the capture of Mosul by the Islamic State. So perhaps we can start there. Yes, let's start from the year when I was born, which was 1986, in the middle of the Iraq-Iran war. I was literally born in the middle of that war. My entire life and those of my generation and every generation that came after that 
has been defined by trauma. Layers, open layers of trauma. I realize you were very young at the time, Omar, but do you have any recollections of the Iraq-Iran war? If not the conflict itself, then its aftermath? This is a war which many may struggle to recall, but it was a devastating conflict. Estimates of up to half a million dead, the use of chemical weapons, child soldiers. I mean, it must have had a deep impact on Iraqi society at the time and for years after the war itself ended. I was too young to remember the Iraq-Iran war. It started six years before I was born and ended when I was two. So I don't have any memories of that war, but, but I did live with the effects of its aftermath. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed. I mean, millions of people were displaced. And then there is the psychological and social toll that you don't always see, but it's just as real. The war did impact my family, very deeply, in fact. Um, My father was injured and uh, received care for many years because of his injuries. Uh, My uncle was killed. Uh, In fact, his name was Omar, and I am named uh, uh, in his memory. Uh, there are very few Iraqis who were not impacted by the war uh, with Iran. Um, but for the earliest childhood memories, those are from a different war, sitting in a basement. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. The 39-nation coalition is the largest since World War II. Withdraw from Kuwait or face a coalition ready and willing to employ all means necessary. Over 600 planes were launched that night. There had never been any launch as big, a support package as big ever in the history of the Air Force. marks the 30th anniversary of the Gulf War, a war which the 1996 United States General Accounting Office described as perhaps the most successful war fought by the United States in the 20th century. This given the low number of US casualties and the short duration of the campaign. And the report goes on to highlight that the main ground campaign occupied only the final 100 hours of the war. At the time, The Gulf War was seen as the epitome of a sophisticated, high-tech, modern war, especially in how air power was deployed at an extraordinary scale. In a six-week period, 116,000 combat air sorties have flown, over 88,000 tonnes of bombs are dropped, stealth aircraft and precision-guided munitions were used extensively. The images of the war, seen around the world, look like a computer game, high-tech and clean. Omar... Take us onto the ground. Take us into that basement during the Gulf War. Literally, every member of my family and the extended family, and if we could call it our clan, that consists of everyone who belongs to this family, cousins, nieces, nephews, uh, uncles, aunts, everyone. They were all sitting in that basement, which belongs to one of our relatives who is known as Ibrahim or as the uh, uh, biblical name, Abraham. So I would call it the house of Abraham. We must remember that your experiences, sadly, are not unique. Like most Iraqis born since the 1980s, 
your earliest childhood memories are of war. Now, I think a lot of people like to soothe themselves by believing that very young children, it was 1991, you were only four at the time, that such a young child wouldn't have retained those memories. But in my experience, and I think that much of what we are learning about trauma and a child's developing brain is that the opposite is the case, that such traumas tend to become etched deeply into the mind of a child and have a habit of returning in adulthood. I have returned to that basement in my mind many times over the years. In 2003, uh, with the war in Iraq, in 2006, in 2007, when the Islamic State of Iraq, as the group called itself by pen, uh, tried to control Mosul, and again in 2014 and 2015. To be honest, it became comforting for me to think about that time. Maybe because I survived, maybe because I had my family around me and we were all there together. In the years that have passed, fewer and fewer of my family and friends survived what came after the Gulf War. It is important for us to also consider the sanctions against Iraq that were in place from 1990 to 2003. These sanctions were really quite extraordinary in their scope, the purpose being to pressure Saddam and his regime to reduce their appetite and ability to threaten neighbours and develop and use weapons of mass destruction. The economic sanctions were also meant to create, to fuel the conditions for his ouster. While this was the intent of the sanctions, it became quite clear who was really suffering, and it was the Iraqi people. In a 1996 interview with Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes, then U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Madeleine Albright, said this. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Former Ambassador Albright has since expressed regret at her choice of words in that interview. We play it now because these were the words of the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations at the time. These words were projected to the world. One thing seems pretty clear. The impact of these sanctions, especially on Iraq's most vulnerable, was known then, even if exact numbers are hard to nail down even now. It is also important to remember that the rhetoric of senior government officials matters. It shapes how people understand the world, why decisions are made, and towards what ends. In a place like Iraq, where a dictator controlled the media, rhetoric like this doesn't need to be twisted by a regime's propagandists to have the desired impact. Now, in many ways, Omar, your adolescence and teen years were partly defined by life under these sanctions. Do you recall how the sanctions were perceived, like who people tended to blame for them? The word Hisar, or the embargo, was as clear and as present as the brutality of Saddam. So the only uh, 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 the only equality we would have in that time is that uh, uh, the share of the embargo and the share of Saddam they are balanced. I mean, we know that half of it is Saddam and half of the other half is the embargo. Okay, how about amongst the people? Wars followed by sanctions I mean, that takes an incredible toll, and not just physically and materially. There are psychological and social impacts too there is this compounding effect that happens when people are dealing with multi-generational traumas. We're talking about 
year after year of violence, deprivations, poverty, and of course, the brutal dictatorship of Saddam Hussein. What impacts do you think all of this had on people? Um, I believe that also shaped our way of looking at uh, each other or seeing each other. I think what the embargo left is that it created, of course, it's what they didn't want to be, but it created monsters of us. Those who were keeping the food in order to sell it, uh, um, to sell it at a very uh, high price, they were benefiting from the embargo. While also, uh, uh, we were living in hunger. Saddam and his region, I mean, they were living in a golden life. And another thing, uh, living under a dictator, it is something you cannot imagine. The constant fear, the sense of always being watched, of always knowing that you or someone you care about could just be taken by the regime and tortured or killed. On the topic of the Saddam regime, it was during the period of the sanctions that the National Faith Campaign was rolled out across Iraq, transforming the role of religion in the society at a time of acute crisis and deprivation. The combination of the Faith Campaign and the hardships of the sanctions, if inadvertently, fueled conditions which ultimately benefited Iraq's Islamists. Yes, in many ways. The seeds for the future dominance of the Islamists in Mosul were sown and fertilized during this time. When I spoke to Rashid Akidi, a proud Mosul and accomplished analyst, she reflected on the impact of the national faith campaign during the uh, sanctions crisis. This was, alhamdulillah, Imamiya was a overhaul of religious teachings and the role of religion in society that happened all across Iraq. I don't want to talk about that now, but I want to talk about how the faith campaign impacted Muslim in particular. What it did, what the faith campaign did, was it gave an opportunity, a social platform for the uh, covert Islamist. They were given sort of a social platform that others did not have, meaning... What does the social platform mean in Muslim in this context? They were allowed to go to mosques and begin religious teachings for young students during the summer. Before the faith campaign, this was not common in Iraq. They were allowed to go to school and give lectures, uh, elementary school, middle schools, and even universities. They were allowed to conduct charity organizations, which had a massive impact. This was during the economic sanctions. You grew up during the sanctions, so do I. We both remember how cool they were. So when they would go to school and they would offer clothing and food stamps and to, uh, you know, poor families, for poor students, it had an impact. It affected the society. But with it, they were also preaching the importance of social conservatism. So within several years after the faith campaign, and Omar, I'm sure you remember this clearly, even though we were both young, how many women were wearing hijab in Mosul in 1992 versus how many were wearing in 1997? It was a 180-degree change in society. And not just, not, just that, the, not just hijab, so I don't want to be accused by any, uh, anyone of attacking that. Also, the number of mosques that were built, despite the fact that the country was under economic sanctions and people did not have money to buy food, but wealthy people, many of them very religious themselves, were building mosques and, and religious centers. Uh, the number of lectures in the university and in high schools that were focused on religion, on the importance of embracing uh, faith, 
And because the country was under economic sanctions, for some people, turning to faith was a way to calm themselves and, and uh, not to resort to desperation, perhaps. We are going to return to the implications of this for after the fall of Saddam in 2003 and the growth of Islamism in Mosul. But setting the scene for the moment, it really is desperate times for the average Iraqi, isn't it? This was reality for us. And yes, it created monsters. But also, it attracted monsters. I mean, crisis can bring out the best in humanity, but for some, it brings out the worst. Of course, we are using the example of one life, your life, to highlight the human experience of this history. And in doing so, getting a glimpse into the lives of generations of Iraqis. I mean, for my generation, we literally knew nothing else. Nothing but war. I was born uh, uh, into war with our neighbors. Dragged into another war with the world's greatest military force by a dictator who, of course, didn't care for his people. Sanctions that limited food and medicine for almost 13 years. And all of that only stopped thanks to another war. We have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. Uh, After they hit us and killed 3,000 of our people here at home, we said, enough's enough. We're going to aggressively go after them. We'll go after the terrorists wherever we find them. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil. The United States of America will not permit the world's most dangerous regimes to threaten us with the world's most destructive weapons. Iraq war, which began in March 2003 and formally ended in August 2010 with final US troop withdrawal in December 2011, is perhaps the most important event in the history of the Islamic State movement, and particularly in the city of Mosul. Many of our listeners will be aware of the big events, the broad brushstrokes of that history, the big stories to emerge from the Iraq war and its aftermath that the case for war was largely based on the need to disarm Iraq of weapons of mass destruction, weapons which were never found, that the US-led coalition swept aside Saddam Hussein's military forces with relative ease. Images of Iraqis jubilant at the dictator's removal were beamed around the world. Then there was President Bush's infamous mission accomplished speech on the USS Abraham Lincoln on May 1, 2003. The disasters that followed the policy of debathification which was the decision by the US-led Coalition Provisional Authority in May 2003 to dismiss all members of the ruling Ba'ath Party and dissolve Iraq's military and intelligence services. And, of course, there are the insurgencies that broke out across the country and all the tragedies and terrors that emerged from that deadly mix. The city of Mosul and the experiences of its people, of Maslawis, throughout this history, I think will surprise a lot of our listeners. Omar... Where should we start to tell that story, the story of Mosul through the years of the Iraq war? This chapter of history, of Mosul's history, it begins with a profound sense of hope for the future. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies 
have prevailed. Iraqi people in overwhelming numbers did welcome us as liberators. Just if you go back and read the headlines from any American newspaper on April 9th, April 10th of people cheering us in the streets of Baghdad and all over the country, uh, they were dying for liberation. I'd like to see what Iraq looks like in, in 10 or 20 years and to hopefully this is a better place than, than when we left it. We felt for the first time, Haroro, and I say for the first time, literally for the first time, something called the freedom. That for the first time in my whole life, I would hear a person loudly using the speakers of the mosque, saying that this is the day of freedom. This is the fall of dictatorship and injustice. Yes, I mean, we did feel that moment. And we unfortunately lost that moment. What a lot of people will not know or have forgotten is that when the Saddam regime fell, in Mosul, a grassroots democratic governance effort rapidly emerged in 2003. Historically, it was rooted in what is best described as an underground, pro-democracy opposition to Saddam that had been active for decades. Yes, um, I call them the real opposition for a reason. Uh, Because they lived in Iraq, they never left all through the years of Saddam. Um, they were publicly silent, but privately they were preaching against the Ba'ath regime. As a result, um, they were constantly persecuted and attacked by Saddam. These underground activists laid the foundations for what many, including myself, hoped would be a real democracy-based political system for when the regime fell. Never forget that Mosul was the first major city in Iraq to elect its government in the, uh, during May 2003, less than two months after U.S.-led military forces began their operation. And Mosul's civil administration worked hard to try to address the people's needs. That's a very important point, Omar. This is not just hope, but real, tangible, practical efforts to establish, however imperfectly, democracy in Mosul. Absolutely. However, it is important that we also acknowledge that there was a prominent Islamist bloc in Mosul. And these were the people who had, in very important ways, benefited from the national faith campaign and the hardships of the 1990s to not only organize themselves, but establish relationships across the country and the society via charity and social outreach activities. Now with Saddam gone, they saw that this as a chance to pursue influence and power. Some Islamists believed in democratic process, while of course, there were those Islamists who pursued more radical reforms. Here is Rasha Alakidi again. So you have these Islamists, they were organized already. They had their roots. They were the only group during Saddam's time that were able to organize in this sense besides the Baathists. So secularists were not allowed to organize. Intellectual people had no right to gather and create their own you know, sort of community. But Islamists did. So when 2003 happened, when Saddam's regime fell, and when it fell completely, when it collapsed, when the Baathists were no longer there, who were the only group that were prepared to organize and enter the political realm? It was the Islamists. So this is where the divide happens, and I was just coming to this point. 
So some of the some of the Islamists um, they do believe in democracy. Now, how they apply this democracy and the kind of government and the kind of rule that they have in mind. If we look at the first votes in Bosnia in 2003, all the way to the parliament election in 2005, the Islamic Party won massively in Bosnia. Everyone voted for them. Most of the people voted for them because they were familiar with them. They recognized their faces. They knew who these people were, and they were very well prepared. They were the only ones who were. This is a trend we see, of course, in other countries across the Middle East, where in the aftermath of dictatorship, Islamist groups are in a better position to compete in elections. Let's be clear. We must highlight the fact that Mosul held elections so rapidly because it is a reminder that there were real opportunities to make democracy work. There were participants in the election and the civil administration who were more secular, while others were more religious. This is like many democracies. But participating in elections and so quickly is testimony to the opportunities that were there in 2003 and into 2004. This is the view that many Mosulis would uh, share, I think. This sense of hope and opportunity was shared amongst some of the highest levels of the US authority in Iraq at the time. Here is General David Petraeus, who was the commanding general of the US Army's 101st Airborne Division, based in Mosul from April 2003 to February 2004. Well, there really was a chance. In fact, by the time that Ambassador Bremer even visited Mosul for the first time, which was one of his first trips outside because he'd heard that, that things were going well there, uh, we were already training Iraqi security forces. We already had the police academy reopened. And by the way, the, those forces, by design, were both Arab and Kurd together. They involved, again, uh, individuals from all the different sects and ethnic groups and everything else, because, of course, everybody wanted their young men uh, in these security forces, uh, as was always the case. And we hoped that it could be the unifying feature in the same way that the Iraqi army was to a degree. If you really think about under Saddam, there was really only one national institution uh, that the people saw as representing all of Iraq, or at least all of the uh, less than Kurdish Iraq, uh, and that was the Iraqi National Army. Uh, in any event, all of these activities were ongoing. We'd reopened the border with, with Syria. We'd found money and actually paid uh, the salaries of the the workers of the government, um, and we made sure that the, the uh, stores and shops and so forth were fully supplied before that money was distributed so that it didn't just drive up prices. Uh, we had, again, various items flowing from Turkey. Uh, ultimately, we did a deal of heavy fuel oil for electricity from Turkey and crude oil to Syria for electricity for Western Nineveh. All of these endeavors uh, were ongoing. And then, tragically, um, you had the firing of the Iraqi National Army without any instruction about how they would be provided for and how they could, in turn, provide for their families. And you had debathification without an agreed reconciliation process. Omar, we need to address the issue of debathification. The policy is formally implemented in May 2003, in fact, less than two weeks after those first elections in Mosul. And Paul Bremer, the US administrator of Iraq, gave two orders that, at least initially, are sweeping and indiscriminate in scope. First, the Ba'ath Party are outlawed and senior members are dismissed from their posts. And second, 
the military and intelligence services are dissolved. Now, on the surface, that may make intuitive sense. Purge the regime, purge the ruling party so that Iraq can have a fresh start. But a moment's reflection on the realities of life in Iraq reveal the flawed assumptions that underpin the policy and hint to the disastrous consequences of its implementation. For example, under Saddam's authoritarian regime, membership in the Ba'ath Party was a requirement for holding a government job. Now, this is an authoritarian regime. It controls activities in basically all the key sectors of Iraq's economy and society. Exactly. And the result is that the people working in a range of different areas are simply dismissed and sent home. University professors, civil administration, employees, including those who worked in health and education, as well as, of course, the police, military, and intelligence services. All these dismissals, with no due process, fueled the grievances, it took away salaries, and people could not support and feed their families. So, debathification didn't just impact those individuals who were dismissed. There were these ripple effects impacting their families, communities, and ultimately, the society more broadly. Of course, government structure began to fail. The provision of basic services collapses, and the security situation just fell apart. In fact, it was Worse than that, because not only security weakened because the police and military were dismissed, but many of those people then joined the resistance. Here is General David Petraeus on debathification. The plan that was there, first of all, was not based on a, I think, a sufficiently nuanced and detailed, uh, granular understanding. Uh, of the situation in Iraq. Um, in, in fact, actually, some of the experts in the State Department uh, wrote a dissenting memo. I believe that Ambassador Bill Burns, who is now about to be nominated for the CIA, was one of those individuals, and I believe that Ambassador Ryan Crocker was another. Those that really understood Iraq um, offered a great deal of caution uh, before this, uh, but others felt that, well, we just need to take down Saddam. And again, you'll see uh, a, a, an alternative government will be established and the troops will go home to the United States to a victory parade, such as we did after uh, Operation Desert Storm, uh, liberating Kuwait from Saddam's army. Again, clearly that was not uh, going to be the case, but the effect of these two orders was so catastrophic uh, because it didn't provide for what the army members were going to do afterwards, and it didn't pr- allow any hope for those who were debathified uh, because there was no process of reconciliation. It was clear that debathification was a disaster. And by April 2004, the coalition provisional authority was softening uh, the policy, but the damage was done. All the happiness that Iraqis felt when they were freed was now being replaced by frustration and anger. Because basic needs are not being met. The society is fracturing 
and the security situation is falling apart. In Mosul, the city administration is still working to try and bring stability to Mosul and Nineveh province. However, the effects of debathification were making that hard. Something else started to happen beginning in the middle of 2003. It became clear that a particularly sinister forest had entered the arena. In August 2003, there were three devastating attacks. A truck bomb targeting the Jordanian embassy in Baghdad killed 17 on August 7. Another truck bomb, this time hits the UN headquarters in Baghdad, killing 24, including the UN envoy Sergio Vieira de Mello on August 19. Then, 10 days later, two car bombs outside the Imam Ali shrine in Najaf, one of the most sacred Shia shrines, kills 125, including Grand Ayatollah Muhammad Baka al-Hakim. Similar, unclaimed attacks continue through September, October, November and December of 2003. Then a letter is captured by US forces in January 2004. It's addressed to al-Qaeda's leadership and it is written by Abu Masab al-Zakawi. And in it, he outlines his plans to transform the war in Iraq. In the letter, Zakawi begins by providing a strategic assessment of Iraq, its ethnic and sectarian fault lines, potential opportunities to exploit, and pitfalls to avoid. Zakawi expresses his frustrations with the Iraqi resistance, and in doing so, hints to the bloody strategy that he is about to propose. The Iraqi brothers still prefer safety and returning to the arms of their wives. We have told them, in our many sessions with them, that safety and victory are incompatible, that people cannot awaken from their stupor unless talk of martyrdom and martyrs fills their days and nights. The matter needs more patience and conviction. In the letter, Zakawi admits, I have completed 25 operations up to now, including among the Shia and their symbolic figures, the Americans and their soldiers, the police and soldiers, and the coalition forces. God willing, more are to come. What has prevented us from going public is that we have been waiting until we have weight on the ground and finished preparing integrated structures capable of bearing the consequences of going public so that we appear in strength and do not suffer a reversal. The strategy he proposes is to use violence to fuel a triangular war between coalition forces, Iraq Shia, and Iraq Sunni populations. I come back and again say that the only solution is for us to strike the religious, military, and other cadres among the Shia with blow after blow until they bend to the Sunnis. Someone may say that, in this matter, we are being hasty and rash and leading the Islamic nation into a battle for which it is not ready, a battle that will be revolting and in which blood will be spilled. This is exactly what we want, since right and wrong no longer have any place in our current situation. If we succeed in dragging them into the arena of sectarian war, it will become possible to awaken the inattentive Sunnis as they feel imminent danger and annihilating death. If we are able to strike them with one painful blow after another until they enter the battle, we will be able to reshuffle the cards. Then no value or influence will remain to the governing council or even to the Americans who will enter a second battle with the Shia. This is what we want. And whether they like it or not, many Sunni areas will stand with the Mujahideen. Zakawi knew that violence alone would be insufficient. A propaganda campaign to complement actions in the field would be essential. We are seriously preparing media material that will reveal the facts 
call forth firm intentions, arouse determination, and become an arena of jihad in which the pen and the sword will complement each other. For Zakawi, patience and careful timing would be crucial for his strategy to succeed. It is our hope to accelerate the pace of work and that companies and battalions with expertise, experience, and endurance will be formed to await the zero hour when we will begin to appear in the open, gain control of the land at night, and extend it into daylight. We couldn't have known that this Jordanian, this guy Zarqawi, that most Iraqis had never heard of, would transform everything. But the bumps kept coming. And it was mayhem. But I can say for sure that there were still opportunities in Mosul to create something better. You've been listening to Mosul and the Islamic State, brought to you by the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. Mosul and the Islamic State is hosted and co-produced by Omar Mohammed, written and produced by Hara Ingram, with audio editing by Andrew Mines. The music featured at the beginning of each episode is The Curve, which was written and performed by the Maslawi musician Amin Mokdad. If you're interested in finding out more about the research that is featured in this podcast, please check out The ISIS Reader, Milestone Texts of the Islamic State Movement, published by Hearst and Oxford University Press, The Long Jihad, and a variety of other ISIS-related studies on the Program on Extremism website, and for all of Omar Muhammad's reporting as Mosul I, please visit mosul-i.org. <laughs>